Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Yes, so the reading can be found on page 484 of the Church Bibles. That's Nehemiah chapter 1, page 484. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Carolyn, for reading God's word to us. And uh, be grateful if you'd keep uh, that uh, passage open in front of us. But let me first just extend uh, my welcome to you following Pete's from earlier. It's uh, particularly lovely to be together. There's something wonderful, isn't it, about being gathered uh, as God's people. But on a day like this, it does give uh, an extra sense of of joy. Uh, And a particular word of welcome to those who are new uh, amongst us. I know there are some new students, and there are people who have joined the church in recent days. You know, we want to look out for you. We want to give you a warm welcome as a church family. So please uh, do introduce yourselves so that we can say uh, hi to you at the end of the service. Well, before we dig into God's word, would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, come now and speak to us, we ask. Open your word and hide it within our hearts, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What could be the thing that the Lord is asking us to do this coming year? What are the priorities that he's asking us to set for this academic or church year? It may be 
something new these past weeks, possibly months, even years. The Lord has been laying a calling on our life and he's just waiting for us to respond. It may, of course, be something less grand, something quite mundane, really, but of real importance to keep going, to keep being faithful, to keep getting up in the morning and taking the next step forward in faith. Or it may be recovering something of our old spiritual life, neglected in recent times, a, a reworking of our priorities, because after all that's happened in the past, with COVID, with church, with war in Ukraine, with economic uncertainty, we now realize the absolute central importance of making more time with Jesus. Now, the book of Nehemiah has been abused and, uh, and used for every kind of building project. And let me say, it's not the reason that we are going to be looking at it together. Despite, I suppose, the, the tenuous connection, if I can suggest this, in the sort of similar way that the temple has been rebuilt back in the book of Ezra, so our church has been refurbished. And in the way after the temple in Jerusalem is finished in the book of Ezra, so in Nehemiah the Lord is concerned with the walls. So in the same way as our church refurbishment is completed, we could argue it is time for us now to consider and to concentrate on our walls. And as the Lord asked the people in Jerusalem to work together to strengthen their defenses, as the people of God, uh, to, to pull together, just, it may be that the Lord is also saying to us as a church that it is our time now to pull together, to strengthen our resolve to be united as a church family. Now it goes without saying that we are not Nehemiah. But this story here in this book teaches us timeless biblical principles that we can apply to our lives today. It's a story that enables us to recapture a vision of God. And in doing so, it teaches us to come with honesty on our knees to him. To have confidence in our faith that will enable us to stand firm and, where necessary, speak up. It reminds us to keep preaching as the main thing. And above all, it's a story of the relentless faithfulness of our God to faltering, stumbling, people of God. See, these are the reasons I was drawn to this book of Nehemiah. It's been a tough two, three years for the reasons already mentioned. Some of us have had to flee our countries. Others of us have endured terrible sickness and in some case the loss of friends, of family, of loved ones. Many of us have been through deep sadness over church. As individuals, as a congregation, as a nation, as a world, we have been through it. Some of us are still going through the fire, still suffering at the hand of these events. And we feel this morning bruised. We feel weary. And it's going to take time to fully heal. And it may be that we'll always now walk with a limp. 
but maybe in God's kindness for the better. For others of us, maybe dreaming of a new day. And in an odd way, these last few years, not least because of working from home, have given us more time. And our spiritual lives have really been revitalized. And so whether these last few years have left us feeling weaker or stronger, it seems to me that there is at least one thing on the back of these last few years that we now share in common. We all emerge from it with a greater sense of what matters. We all have a greater awareness of what we no longer think is important, while at the same time we are clearer about what we want to do, about what we want to be. See, the real danger for us could be, particularly as we enter this new season as a church, is that we set off in our own strength without people, without pausing to ask, what does the Lord want from us? What does the Lord want me to do? What is his will for our collective life? And if we don't ask those questions, it, not only is it potentially foolish, but also potentially sinful. So I want to suggest to us this morning, the future provides a unique gospel opportunity for all of us. We've been humbled, brought to our knees. And yet this morning, we are still breathing. There is still life in our lungs. There is still some living to be done. And Nehemiah will give us a fresh understanding of who our God is and remind us that he is on the throne. And as he had a plan for the church family in Jerusalem, so he has a plan for the church family here in forward. That's why I want to suggest to us today that there's an opportunity not to be missed. It's why there's also never been a greater need for people of passion, people of principle, people of Holy Spirit vision, willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. Yet in order to realize this opportunity, we first have to reckon with the futility of everything that we can ever come from our own imagined strength or weakness. See, that is what Nehemiah had to do. This is what the people had to do. Before they were called to, to build the wall, they first had to understand that they couldn't do anything of worth in their own strength. You see, only insofar as every part of our life is adjusted to God in every detail can God achieve his purpose through us. And only as he achieves his purpose through us will our life be successful in the truest sense of the word. It's only when we realize that the Lord has the supreme claim upon our life and the life of each one of us that we can be truly effective. It's what had to be realized first. It's the 20th year of the rule of King Artaxerxes. It's the year 445 BC. And we're in a place, you'll notice, called Susa, which wasn't the capital of the empire. Rather, it was the winter residence of the Persian kings. And Nehemiah is King Artaxerxes' cupbearer. Uh, he's at the top of his profession. He's clearly a man of immense integrity, and as we'll look together at Nehemiah, we'll see that he's an intriguing and he's a complex character. He's a strong character. He's temperamental at times. But this morning, 
We want to see the particular feature of Nehemiah that stands out and shines above all others. And it's this. He's first and foremost a man of prayer who delights, verse 11, in revering, in worshipping God's name. And in verse 2 here, we're given the setting for prayer. Hananiah, one of my brothers or kinsmen, came from Judah with some other men. It's an official delegation from Jerusalem seeking help. Uh, one of my brothers, it may well literally be his brother, or it may just be that he's a brother in the sense that he's a fellow Jew. Understandably, Nehemiah wants to know about the progress of the wall. He, he seems to have asked them all sorts of kinds, all, all kinds of questions. How are they doing? How is so-and-so? But how is the Lord's work prospering? Tell me, tell me about the church in Jerusalem. And I want to suggest to you this morning that as Christians, we, we should be like this. You know, when we hear about the church in some other part of, of the world, we should be concerned about the Lord's work there. We should be concerned about the church in Ukraine. How are the Christians doing in Ukraine? We should be concerned about our brothers and sisters from Ukraine here. What does it look like for them to be separated from their home church? Reminds me of William Carey. When he was a cobbler and a part-time teacher, he'd been reading Captain Cook's travel dialogues about far-off places, and he bought a, a map, and he put it on, on the wall behind him. And on that map, he'd write all kinds of uh, statistics and, and figures about the church, about the people of God, and about the unreached people groups uh, that needed to, to hear the gospel. And over time, a, a growing concern grew for that part of the world, and often, a growing concern for something, whether globally, nationally, or even locally, is often evidence that a passion is being given to us, and that passion can reveal a calling. It's that a heartfelt passion for a place or a need or even an area of ministry within the church that the Lord often uses to begin the work of preparation for a calling to serve. So let's have a look, a closer look, at how God prepares Nehemiah for his calling to serve. And we see first that he is prepared, prepared by weeping. You see, the story of what Nehemiah hears is a tragic one. And it's given to us there in the third verse of this chapter. The remnant are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, it's important to remember that Nehemiah recounts these events himself. It's his personal memoirs, if you like. And the mention of remnant may have been a carefully chosen word. It's an Old Testament word loaded with meaning. It speaks of a people who are not merely survivors who escape destruction, but according to Isaiah chapter 10, lean upon the Lord in truth. They are a people with a future. And the remnants are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And in the ancient world, this was the calamity of total defenselessness. Those living in an unwalled city lived in constant stress and tension. They never knew when they might be attacked and brutalized. Every man lived in constant fear for his, for his wife and his children. It was an achievement just to survive. 
Sadly, I understand that there are those here from Ukraine who can relate to this feeling only too well. And the background is the sequence of events that took place in the book of Ezra. You see, the work of rebuilding the walls had, uh, had begun only to meet local opposition. And the people of God were greatly discouraged. Now, now on how many occasions have, have we taken up a task in the name of the Lord only to withdraw beaten, discouraged, and baffled? And it's important to remember Every discouragement has been allowed to come to us in order that through it we may cast ourselves in utter helplessness at the Savior's feet. See, all around us today we see discouragement, growing hostility towards our faith. The gospel seeming to have so little impact. The circumstances of these last few years have left many of us deeply discouraged. But the if the truth be known, many of us have been living with great trouble in constant distress, living only as survivors for years. It's only that the events of these last few years have brought this to the surface. And you may feel this morning that being a survivor is my best case scenario. In fact, it's a miracle you may feel that I'm even surviving. And that is probably how Nehemiah felt at this news from Jerusalem. But as we will see, as we work through this book of Nehemiah uh, together, we will see that the Lord had much more for him. Jesus weeps and prays for us that we would be more than mere survivors. His prayer for us is that we would be conquerors, indeed more than conquerors, through his deep love for us. For he knows us by name. Upon receiving the report from Hanani, Nehemiah's legs gave way and he collapsed into his seat. You see, it's one thing to know uh, the state of affairs in a general way. It's quite another for his own brother to come to Susa and tell him the story and for Nehemiah to feel the pressure and burden of it in his own heart. And as Nehemiah heard the story, we're told in verse 4 that he sat down and he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. But Nehemiah was not the last to weep over Jerusalem. One day, Jesus, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, he sat there and he wept over that city. And he mourned and he prayed and he sacrificed his life for it. And it may be that Jesus has shed a tear or two for us these last few years. There is a lesson here from Nehemiah for all of us. We never lighten the load, make something less overwhelming, unless first we've felt the weight of it in our own soul. We are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened our eyes and made us see things as they are. 
There is no other preparation for gospel work than that. You see, if we're absolutely honest with one another, our tendency is to be supremely concerned about building things, about fixing things. Uh, the wall of our soul, the wall in our church, the wall in our missionary endeavors, to take matters into our own hands and sort it out. Yet we learn from the story of Nehemiah that before we commence by the grace of God to rebuild the walls, we must first pray. We cannot slip into what God is calling us to do as some kind of project. We'll fail terribly if we try to do that. See, before we attempt any service for God, however comparatively small, however apparently insignificant, we would do well, first of all, to survey the situation around us. You see, we would do well, even this morning, to take a good look at the growing disdain towards the work of God in our society. Then we should look at the failure concerning church attendance. We would do well to mourn over the indifference of Christian people and grieve over the failure of Christian leaders. Perhaps most of all, as we survey the walls that need rebuilding, we are called to mourn over the failing in our own lives, to live lives which truly reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerusalem's walls were broken and its gates were burned. And to a modern city like Sheffield, that means nothing. But God's purpose for Jerusalem was that its walls should be salvation and its gates should be praise. And the emblems of salvation and praise had suffered severely. Was God calling us, calling some of us to weep and mourn over the brokenness of these emblems in our own lives? The symbol of salvation, the symbol of praise, the wall that marks our separation from the world, does it today lie broken? See, there is no blessing until we look deep down in our own soul and we see our spiritual life as it truly is. Should we mourn over that in our life today? What about the wall of our prayer life and our daily Bible readings? What about the wall of our consistent testimony at work? And with our student friends? What about the wall of our walk with God? What about the wall of our faithfulness in our marriage? What about the wall of our purity? Do these things in the sight of God lie in ruins? See, when God takes up a person and uses them in his service, the first thing he does is to show them their own utter inadequacy insufficiency and unworthiness for the task. And this was the, the essential part of Nehemiah's preparation. And it was an essential part of the people's preparation. Nehemiah was burdened. His heart was heavy. He was concerned about the kingdom, but he was concerned about the cause of God. But he couldn't do anything about it. He was just the cupbearer. He couldn't take a week off. He couldn't put a, an out-of-office message up on Gmail saying, I'm going away for a couple of weeks. So what did he do? He prayed, and he mourned, and he fasted for four months, from the month of Kislev, chapter 1, verse 1, to the month of Nisan, chapter 2, verse 1. So we've seen together the, how God prepared um, Nehemiah by weeping. We now see how Nehemiah was prepared by prayer. 
verses 5 to 11. Now, when we have a, a vision of brokenness in ourselves and also in the thing that we're praying for, we can be tempted to say, our instinct can be, well, there's very little I can do to help, actually. I might as well not even try. We can be tempted to give up before we've even started. Or we can be tempted to, to take matters into our own hands, to take charge. I'll fix it. And given Nehemiah's natural bent for swift, uh, decisive action, his behavior here is truly remarkable. It shows where his priorities lie. He neither gives up nor he takes matters into his own hands. He prays. And initially his response, as we've seen, is to sit down and pray. But there comes a point when he has to get back up. He has to pray on the job. He has to pray when he's before the king. It's all that he can do, and yet it's everything that he can do. It's the instinct of his heart. It's the disposition of this redeemed soul to pour out his soul to Almighty God. And we see this there in the opening lines, verse 5. He deliberately note, postpones any cry for help, which otherwise could be faithless and pitying. Instead, he mounts immediately to heaven in prayer to gain a right perspective as he reflects on the character of God. He reflects not only on the loyalty and love of God for encouragement, but first of all on the Lord's majesty, the Lord, the God of heaven which brings all humanity, whether friend or foe, into their rightful place of worship. Nehemiah is bringing us as readers into a worshipping encounter with God. We're each to be impacted as we meditate on these words, on this prayer. And we're to ask, do we love the Lord our God and keep his commandments? Do we worship him as we should? You'll notice at verse 6, day and night, Nehemiah approaches God in prayer. His stickability and patience here is remarkable. Over and over, he's praying and fasting for the Lord to do a new and God-centered work in Jerusalem. Of course, he didn't mention any of this in the king's presence. So he's praying, not knowing, not understanding what the future will bring. You know, God's, God's timetable is perfect. He's never early and he's never late. When things happen, they happen right on schedule. And here is Nehemiah. He's disciplined. He's patient in prayer. Don't give up praying. That burden, that situation, that soul, that child, that parent, that you've been praying for for years. Don't give up. Keep praying. Don't stop. So we see, first, if you like, that Nehemiah's prayer is founded on adoration. It's also rooted in repentance. The remembrance of uh, God's covenant and the obligation to keep his commandments inevitably leads to heart-searching and confession. Nehemiah's face with such a standard owns up to personal as well as corporate guilt. And it will be very easy here to pass over the strong sense of solidarity that Nehemiah shows to God's people. End of verse 6 and verse 7. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Verse 7. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I want to notice here that Nehemiah is not pointing the finger at others for the brokenness in Jerusalem. 
You know, so-and-so is to blame for what happened. So-and-so messed up. See, confession is just a great leveler, isn't it? See, we all know our hearts. That's why the, the communion table that we're going to gather around in a moment is so precious. We corporately unite as sinners in confession. Together we come. Together we find forgiveness. You know, when it comes to prayer, we can be honest with one another that we find it hard. That's why you remember the, G the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. We're struggling with prayer. Help us. How are we supposed to pray? And now Jesus, quite honestly, he could have said, go and read Nehemiah chapter 1. It follows actually a very similar structure to the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer founded on adoration. It's rooted in confession. It's also, notes a prayer that's grounded in the Word. Now, as I read through uh, this, uh, this prayer, it was like listening to, uh, uh, to some of the prayers of, of the older saints in our church family. Those saints that we greatly admire and aspire to be like in a good way. See, it's a prayer that continually quotes Scripture. One commentator says that Nehemiah is a student of Scripture. See, Nehemiah knows his Bible well. He knows the narrative and the story. He knows the threats and he knows the promises that God has made. So he is able to come to God and make a strong, not a tentative request, quoting Deuteronomy in verse 8 and 9, claiming the promise that God made. If you return to me, I will return to you. Nehemiah here reasons and persuades God with his own words from Scripture. And I'm reminded of, of the story of, of the Hebrides revival. I'm sure you've heard this. There's a small cottage, and living in that cottage, there were these two elderly women, Peggy and Christine Smith. One was 84, and the other was 82 years old. Peggy was blind, and her sister almost bent double with arthritis. Unable at this stage to attend church, their cottage became a place of prayer. And one day in prayer, the promise from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3 was given. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And they pleaded this day and night in prayer until it was answered. So it's a prayer we see that is founded on adoration. It's rooted in repentance. It's grounded in the word. Also, it's established on God's promise. Observe there the 10th verse of this chapter. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And in verse 10 here, Nehemiah went back hundreds and hundreds of years and he dared to remind God of the covenant that God had given to his people that someday they would possess the land. Nehemiah quotes here uh, the words in which Moses had pleaded for Israel on Mount Sinai. It's Deuteronomy 9, verse 29. That God would stand by his own. They are your servants and your people, Lord. Now at that point, we know our biblical history. Israel had been threatened with extinction. And now it seems... 
Nehemiah sees the situation as hardly less perilous. And like Moses, he stands in the gap between God and the people, pleading on their behalf. And let me urge you, each one of us, to be like Nehemiah in this sense, to stand in the gap and pray. Nehemiah based all of his prayer upon God's past dealings, and he saw in them a mirror of all God's future plans. Whatever the brokenness that we may feel in our souls today, let me encourage us to go back to God's past, to ground our prayers upon a cross, upon an empty tomb, upon an ascended Lord. Then we will see in these things the mirror reflecting all God's purposes for this world and ours. You know, the truth be known is we do not hear so much of this kind of praying these days. See, most of our prayers are just asking God to, to bless his work and, and to bless his people that are ill and, and, and to keep us plugging along, to keep the work going. But prayer, you see, is more than that. It's warfare. Real prayer engages in battle. Real prayer is rooted in the promises of God and in the covenant of blood. Do we pray like this? I ask myself, do I pray like this with that kind of faith? See, we can look back to a place where Jesus died and shed his blood and we can know he is coming again. Certainly, he did not do that to leave all of us living as we are today or to leave our churches weak and inadequate in their impact and insufficient in their witness. Take a long look at the cross and then we will know something about the effective way to be praying. The prayer concludes with a request, verse 11. Nehemiah moves to petitioning for his own success before the king. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of King Artaxerxes. Now, I'm not sure if Nehemiah fully understood how God was going to answer this because it's breathtaking, as we'll see in the weeks to come. It's a heart-stopping moment when Nehemiah actually has to address the king and his life is probably in danger. Have mercy. Remember your word. Remember your promises to your people. Do this for your sake. In the meantime, Nehemiah must wait for the right moment to speak to the king. And here, at this point in our story, he's waiting. He's waiting in prayer. He's waiting before the presence of God. My dear friend, is that where you are this morning? In your own personal life? You're waiting before God in prayer with a burden on your heart. Well, take courage from Nehemiah. What an extraordinary, encouraging thing it is to see God having mercy, stepping in, remembering his word, coming to the aid of his people, answering Nehemiah's prayer. Perhaps the greatest joy we could all experience serving alongside one another 
over these coming months could be if we come together and commit to pray this prayer together as individuals, collectively as a congregation. We commit to pray this prayer here in front of us. It's given to us for a reason. In the same way that the Lord's Prayer was given. It's a prayer that we can pray. And then, and then we see how God, by his grace, by his mercy, out of his love for his people, in honoring his promises, and then we see how God answers it. Amen.